really excited about our study uh, this semester. I've been wanting to study the book of Ephesians for uh, a long time uh, in, in depth and to be able to actually uh, kind of teach through it. And so, um, why Ephesians, you might ask? In particular, why this book? Well, first of all, the obvious reason is it's God's Word. Uh, and again, Second Timothy uh, 3.16 says... That all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, rebuking, training, and correcting in righteousness. It is to equip us for every good work. And so uh, that's the first reason. But there's another reason. And it is that Ephesians gives us the essence of the Apostle Paul's teaching. He wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. And so it's good to kind of learn what he says and what his kind of theology that he's working from is all about. And this gives us really his understanding of the gospel. Uh, now, a Romans does that, but a Romans is 16 chapters long and it would take five years for me to get through that book. And so we're going to do Ephesians because it is actually considered kind of the mini Romans, uh, kind of a miniature version uh, of Romans. And the thing I love about Paul is everything pushes towards application. If you look at any of his letters, uh, Romans and Ephesians, and Ephesians in particular, everything is geared towards how the gospel plays out in your life. So it's not like, let's just go pontificate somewhere about all this theology and be a brainiac and, and, and learn all this great stuff and then just live in our heads. Because that's not what Paul does. Paul says... Okay, this is theology, this is the gospel, and now this is how it affects your life if it really makes its way down into your soul. We see that in the first three chapters of Ephesians. If you, We're going to learn, and you'll see through this study, the first three chapters, Paul talks about the riches of the gospel, the riches of what we have in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then all of a sudden in chapter 4, those famous words, Therefore... We talked about that a lot. What is the therefore, therefore? And Paul says, in light of that, in light of what Jesus has done, now, therefore, go live a godly life. This is how it should work out in your life individually and in the midst of community. Now, a little bit about Ephesians uh, and kind of the background and the setting of the book. That's kind of the structure. Grace, then application in the last uh, three chapters of the book. But uh, something a little bit about the context. The church at Ephesus was very special to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul spent more time with Ephesus than any other church that he planted. He spent three years here, from 52 A.D. to 55 A.D. And and it was kind of his uh, hub of operations for his missions uh, to all of Asia. And so they were dear to Paul's heart. Well, seven years later, Paul finds himself in prison for the gospel. 62 AD, Paul's nearing the end of his life. Paul was eventually beheaded for his faith, but he is imprisoned in a prison in Rome, and he decides to write a letter to the people he cared so much about. And let me set the stage for you. Okay, the prisons aren't like they are today. The prisons back then was more like a cave. And it had a little hole in the top to let sunlight in. And so you can imagine, here it is, dark, cold, little light, 
And Paul decides to write a letter to one of the churches that he loves and that he planted and cares so much about. And what's interesting is in this letter, Paul, it's unlike any letter he wrote to the churches. Because if, you, if you've read some of the New Testament, Paul's always addressing problems. Remember, uh, he's addressing problems with the church at Galatia, where he's kind of getting after him a little bit. The same thing with the church of Corinth. But in this letter, surprisingly, Paul is not addressing any real problems. The church appears to be doing well. They appear to be loving each other pretty well, sharing the gospel in their neighborhoods and with their friends, committed to the Great Commission. It was important to them. They weren't ingrown. They were a worshiping community. They had their theology relatively in line. And so, at this point in time, this was a healthy church. But there's a warning here. And there's a warning that you and I don't see unless we go forward a couple of books to the book of Revelation. Because 30 years later, in the 90s A.D., the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 2, John says, Concerning the church at Ephesus, you have lost your first love. What happened? What happened? Because what we discover there is that something happened in those 30 years. The lamp went out in Ephesus. Because Ephesus today is, we know, is now modern day Turkey. And we know that there's very few Christians there today. And so Paul writes this letter to try to keep them on track towards spiritual health. Because apparently at some point they got off track and it should be a warning to every single one of us. That we need to stay on track and we need to listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say to us this semester through this letter to the Ephesians. Because if we don't, we too could find ourselves 30 years from now as having lost our first love. So with that in mind, let's stand and let's read the beginning of this letter to the church at Ephesus. Please stand and hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of His glory. 
In Him also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. This is God's word. Let me pray. Wow. Father, what a passage of Scripture. There is so much here. And I pray that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts. Lord, the truth is, is that many in this room have heard these things before. And I pray that you, through your Spirit, would impress these on our hearts. And it would be like we're hearing it for the first time. That you would melt our heart with these truths. That you would open up our eyes to the wonders of grace and to the wonders of the gospel. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Let me begin by asking you this. Are you bored with the Christian life? Are you bored with Jesus? You know, a lot of people are. A lot of people are bored with Christianity. There's nothing in Christianity that excites them. Have you ever wished that sometimes there was something more than just when I die I'm going to heaven? You know, that's good, but don't you wish there was something more for you to be excited about? Well, in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us something to be excited about. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, tonight. He gives us something to celebrate, to praise, and to worship. What's interesting, if you look at verses 3 through 14 with me, the original language of the New Testament is Greek. And in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 is actually one huge run-on sentence. It's actually a sentence of 203 words. And you see you see what what the point is, what Paul, what we get from that is that Paul is so amped up, so geeked up, so excited about the gospel that he can't contain himself. All rules of grammar just go completely out the window because he is so excited. He just goes on and on and on and on and he can't get his breath because of all that he has in Jesus And that all that Christ has done for him. And so he's just singing. That's what Paul's doing here in this first chapter. He's worshiping. He's singing. He's praising God for what he has done. And friends, we need to be singing too. We need to be that excited about the gospel. Because of all that God has done for us through Jesus. And what we learn from this passage... It's that doctrine, theology, the doctrines of grace, the gospel, all those things lead us to doxology. They lead us to praise and to worship. It leads to singing. And that's what we see here in this passage. The Apostle Paul is singing and he is asking you and me to join him. And the first thing he wants us to, us to sing is the song of election. If you've got your outline with you, um, if it's on the back of the handout. He wants us to sing the song of election. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, Blessed or praise be to the God and Father. Why? Why is Paul praising? Look at verse 4. 
For God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul says that you and I, if you are in Christ, were chosen before the world began. And you know what that means? It means before you were born, before you had done anything good or bad, God chose you to be in Christ. And so His choosing is unconditional. Now, let me stop a minute. Because I know at this point some of you are really uncomfortable. You're like, oh gosh, really? I'm not so sure about this whole predestination or election thing. And let me just admit, it's very difficult. It's very controversial. It's confusing at times. And I know some of you hate that idea. Hate the idea of predestination and election. And I know that there's several reasons for that. But I know there's one reason uh, that could possibly have happened. And it is because some obnoxious moron, some punk, has beaten you over the head with this beautiful doctrine that Paul is so thrilled about. And if that's you, and that's been your experience with this whole doctrine, people trying to browbeat you with it, I've got one thing I want to say to you tonight. And I want to say it publicly, and I said it publicly in the chapel last spring when I preached on the same passage. And it is, I am so sorry that you've been treated that way. I'm so sorry because... Whoever was browbeating you didn't have a clue about this doctrine. They obviously didn't get it. Because if you see the context of this passage, that doctrine of election and predestination leads Paul to praise. It leads him to doxology. It leads him to humility. Never to arrogance. Never to pride. Never to browbeating. Never to psychologizing or pontificating but to worship. But I want you to hear this. Regardless of where you stand on that issue, you're welcome here anytime. And regardless of where you stand, you need to know this too, that you can't get around the doctrine of predestination. You've got to deal with it. It's in the Bible. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You can't ignore it. It's clearly in Scripture and it's clearly in this passage that we're dealing with tonight. Because as plain as day, God says, I chose you and in love predestined you to adoption. And you you need to know that there's absolutely no desire for me to get into a philosophical debate. Why? Because Paul doesn't. There's no desire to try to get all the the objections and all that stuff going. If you want to talk to me about those things, I'm always available. I would love to discuss those with you uh, in more detail. But what I want you to see in this passage tonight is this. Is what I believe every one of you, if you're a Christian, already know. And that is this. That you had absolutely nothing to do with earning your salvation. That you didn't do anything to earn God's love. I think a lot of you already know that. And what I mean by that is that there wasn't something special in you. There wasn't something that made you a little bit better than the next person. Because if you look in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, 
Paul says you are dead in your sins. And he goes on and on in chapter 2 to talk about how dead we are. He even calls us children of wrath. Children of the devil. That's what the way we were born, Paul says. And so that's pretty strong. And so all that to say that that's the reason why we can't do anything to earn God's favor is because the Bible also says we're born spiritually dead. Spiritually in bondage. And the only way... And, and dead people don't do anything. Have you ever seen a dead person? They're not moving. They do nothing. And so we can do nothing spiritually unless God breathes life into our dead hearts and souls and resurrects them. And to be honest with you, I believe that if you believe that you had something to do with your salvation, that what it really actually does, it robs this doctrine of the explosive power for joy in your life. Why? Because think about it. If your relationship with God rests on something you do and something you have done, it's always going to be un, un, uh, insecure. It's always going to be unstable and shifting. Think of it this way. Let me ask you. Do you assume yourself right now to be in right standing with God? Do you assume that you're in good standing with God right now? If the answer to that is yes... Why? You might say, well, Jason, because I prayed a prayer. And I walked an aisle. And I would come back and say, well, how do you know you were sincere enough in your prayer? And you would say, well, because I repented of my sins. And I would say, well, how do you know that you've repented of your sins with pure motives? You see my point? My point is... That if your relationship with anyone depends upon your sincerity, your beauty, your goodness, your effort, then it's always going to be unstable. It's always going to be insecure. The gospel, friends, says this. You had nothing to offer God but your sin. Nothing to offer God but your sin and brokenness. There was nothing in you or your record that you could say... God, look, do you like me now? Look at this, this thing here I did, it was really good. Because you know what God says in His Word? says, even our goodness, our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. And so, God chooses us despite that deadness and He breathes life into us. And He adopts us into His family. That's what it means to uh, think through and to embrace this idea of election and predestination. Mark Rick, uh, I don't know if you all are familiar with that name, but he's the football coach for the University of Georgia. A great uh, man of God, a great Christian. He's got uh, a couple of kids, but one he adopted, uh, actually two, but there's a girl named Anya, his daughter, from the Ukraine. But you need to know something about Anya. Anya was born with this gross deformity on her face, something similar to elephant titus, if you're familiar with that. She was hard to look at. No one wanted her, not even her parents, who took her to the local orphanage when she was born. And day after day, couples from the U.S. would come 
and they would pass by little Anya for obvious reasons. Statistics said that she would stay there and eventually die there until Mark Rick and his wife came along from the United States and out of all the girls in the orphanage, they choose her. And it is a regular sight. I've got a friend that was a trainer for them and he used to tell me this story that... It's a regular site on the side of the University of Georgia uh, sidelines and practices that out of the stands, when the whistle blows and the practice is over, out of the stands comes little Anya running as hard as she can to her daddy's arms with joy. He lifts her up, tosses her in the air, smiling, delighting on over her, rejoicing over her. Now, when you hear that story, what comes to your mind? Compassion, love, mercy. What if we were to tell the Apostle Paul that story? What would come to his mind? Well, I would like to think, because I think this passage points it out when it talks about being predestined to adoption... I think when the Apostle Paul heard that story, he would think predestination. You know why? Because Paul realized he was Anya. He was the one that no one wanted. The one that was hard to look at because of his sin. And yet God, in His mercy, reached down and saved him while he was dead in his sins. Do you see why Paul's praising? Do you see why he's so excited? Do you see why we should be that excited as well? That's why he goes on and on, because he realizes how gracious God has been with him in the midst of his sin. If you're a Christian, are you singing? Are you singing the song of election? You should be. Second point, sing the song of redemption. So not only are we to join Paul in singing the song of election, but we're also to join him in singing the song of redemption. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. This word redemption actually means to buy back. Paul is so excited about the gospel, about this fact of being bought back, that he can't contain himself. And he goes on and on. Now you need to understand that the early Christians, they understood this idea of redemption far better than we do. Because at the time this book was written, there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves were being bought and sold and freed all the time. It was a huge business. And a slave could be set free at any point as long as someone redeemed them or purchased them. They could be set free if someone had the resources. You see see the connection why Paul is so excited? Because he says, that's what God has done for you. That's what Paul, Paul says, God has done for me. I was enslaved to my sin, in bondage. I was a slave to condemnation. I was born a slave to God's wrath. 
and anger. And yet, God redeemed me, but not with perishable things like gold or silver. But He redeemed me with His own Son, with the blood of Jesus Christ Himself. In the book, uh, In the Grip of Grace, Brian Chapel, he's the president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He tells this story uh, that took place on August the 16th, 1987. It was a uh, Northwest flight taking out off out of the Detroit airport, Detroit airport, and shortly after takeoff, the plane crashes. And 155 people on board were killed. All but one little girl. A four-year-old girl named Cecilia. And as the rescuers were putting the story together, they realized what had happened and why she survived. And as the plane started to go down, Cecilia's mother unbuckles her seatbelt and she covers her, her little daughter and wraps her arms around her and refuses to let go. And you see, Cecilia was saved because of the love of her mother and the fact that her mother had wrapped her arms around her and she survived the crash. You see, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. God left His safety seat in heaven next to God the Father, or Jesus, left and came down and He wrapped Himself around you in order to save you and redeem you. Are you singing? Are you singing the song of redemption in Jesus? The truth is, Some of you aren't. Some of you are sitting there tonight broken. Broken hearted. Hurting. Full of guilt and shame. So much so that you don't even know what to do. But you hide it with the appearance. With the smile. With the nice car and the nice clothes. And you have the appearance of having it all together. But your insides are killing you and your heart is condemning you. And you feel so guilty. You feel so guilty over your past, over the things you've done. You feel guilty over what you're doing now and the things that you're struggling with. And you can't seem to get a handle on it. And all I want to say is, friends, Jesus has paid For every bit of it. That's what it means to be redeemed. That all of the junk that you can just obsess over, Jesus paid for it on the cross. And He paid for it with His life. And every bit of the Father's wrath was poured out on His Son. So that you could be redeemed and brought into His family. And so that sin could be done away with once and for all. Do you see the freedom that flows out of redemption? Do you see why Paul is singing? Do you see why you should and I should be singing? Because Jesus has made things right between me and you and God. And that is worth praise and glory. 
He's made, he's made things right, not because you've cleaned yourself up, but because He has redeemed you. You have got to preach this to your heart. You've got to preach it to your soul, because guess what? Every day, tomorrow possibly, you're going to feel guilty again. And you're going to try to fix your life again by just trying to do more stuff and be a little bit better. And Jesus says, stop trying to fix yourself and believe me when I say it is finished. Believe me when I say that your sins are paid for. Sing the song of election. Sing the song of redemption. And then lastly, let's join Paul in singing the song of adoption. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, In love He predestined us for adoption to the praise of His glorious grace. J.I. Packer, he's a scholar, theologian, and he says, Adoption is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. He has this book, it's a classic If you're ever looking for a good read, it's called Knowing God, a great book. And he says this in his chapter on adoption. What is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who who has God as Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. He goes on to say, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Those are pretty strong words, but what he's saying is, if we don't understand adoption, we don't have a clue about Christianity and what it means to live the Christian life. Well, let's talk about what adoption is and what exactly that means. The word is translated in the Greek. It's a word that literally means to make a son. There was no such custom, Hebrew custom of adoption. But it was real common and prominent in the Roman culture. And what's funny is that it never happened until a person was most likely an adult. And a man would have all this money and have this estate and he didn't have a son to pass it on to and so he found someone that he respected and admired and he made him a son. He adopted him. And when that happened, four things happened. All the new son's obligations the new, no, yeah, all the new son, son's old obligations were gone. All his old debts were cast away and removed. He became as wealthy as his father. And the new son, the father becomes liable for what the son does. And the son has the responsibility of carrying on and honoring the name of his new adopted father. So do you see that rich cultural tradition that Paul is drawing on here? In the book of Ephesians, what he's picking up on. And he's saying that that's exactly what happens if you're a Christian. And what we see is that adoption is not primarily a change in our nature. But it's a primary, primarily a change in our status. And this is going to blow your mind because I had to stop as I was writing this sermon and think about this. But here's what this means. 
Try to get your mind around this. It's unbelievable, but what Paul is saying and what this idea of adoption communicates is that you, if you are a Christian, have the same standing as Jesus himself. Jesus is the natural son. We are his adopted sons and daughters. And that means that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. That means that there's no difference between God's love for Christ and God's love for you. If you're a Christian. Now how incredible is that? Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Do you walk around thinking that? Most of the time, we don't. Most of the time, we walk around like slaves. We walk around constantly trying to fill our life with more religious activity and trying to earn God's favor. But he's saying, what are you doing? You're already my child. You're already adopted. I can't love you any more than I love you right now. And yet we're constantly walking and trying to fill our life with more stuff. We live like slaves in that we are full of fear. We're fearful of God. We're fearful of other people. We're fearful of what people think about us. We're fearful and think that God's going to pull the rug out from under us if we screw up. And so we live with all this turmoil and anxiety instead of living in the freedom of what in the security of adoption and what that means. Think, listen to this. I pray that God would help our unbelief because this is true. God's word is what is true. First John 3, the Apostle John writes, Behold what manner of love the Father has poured out on us that we should be called children of God. And then he goes on to say, and that is what you are. And what's funny is that any of the text on adoption and the passages in the Bible, it's like the writers just can't contain themselves. I mean, they're just overflowing with, we're adopted by God. And it's like, listen to this. This is unbelievable. It's something that should move us to the core of who we are. It should thrill us. It should lead us to worship. Just like it led Paul. There's a famous pastor that pastored a long time ago, and his name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he pastored a church for many years, and he tells a story. He was actually preaching on this passage, and he's preaching about the blessings of Christ He's preaching about grace and redemption and adoption and the fact that we have forgiveness of sin. And the whole time he says that he's preaching, there's a 12-year-old boy leaning over the pew, just taking in every word, just taken with this sermon. And Barnhouse is amazed at how this young boy is so in uh, to the sermon. And Barnhouse says he concludes and summarizes the sermon with these words. He says, our sins are forgiven... They're forgotten, cleansed, pardoned, atoned for, remitted, and covered. They have been cast into the depths of the sea, blotted out as with a thick cloud, removed as far as the east is from the west, remembered no more, forever cast behind God's back. And then he said, Amen. And he prayed. And then after the sermon, this 12-year-old boy, he said, makes a beeline for him. And... He says, the 12-year-old boy says, Pastor, that was a great sermon. And then the boy said, We're sitting mighty pretty, aren't we?
Do you believe that? Do you believe you're sitting mighty pretty? I hope you do because it's true. And I hope that it leads you to singing. I hope it leads you to worship. And I hope it leads us in this last song to sing with everything in us because of all that we have in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, um, I pray that if there's someone here tonight that doesn't know you, I pray that you would give them faith, open their eyes to the gospel. Pray that they would repent and believe in you. Father, for the rest of us that have heard these things, some of us, hundreds of times in our life, again, would you impress these afresh onto our hearts? Would you melt us with these truths that often lead us to a boring yawn? Father, I pray that you would, and I pray that you would not allow these things to grow cold in our hearts. Would we bask in adoption and in election and in redemption? And would you use these things to change us and make us more like you? In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and we'll sing. We're also, we'll be down at O. Henry's hanging out, so if you want to hang out, please do.